So today is the start of the third week of Advent. If you've missed our previous Advent sermons in our series, the word Advent means coming or arrival. And the Advent season, which traditionally starts four Sundays before Christmas, is a time for us to remember how the Jewish people waited for the arrival of their Messiah, which culminated in the birth of Jesus. And as Steve talked about last week, Advent isn't just a time for us to look back on those events. Advent is also a time for us to anticipate for when King Jesus comes back again to renew everything once and for all. And today, we're considering the theme of peace. In the English-speaking world, we typically think of peace as the absence of war or strife, or maybe if we're thinking about inner peace, we think it's about the absence of negative thoughts or feelings like stress, fear, or shame. And I'm not downplaying those things. Less war is good, and we should pray for that. But none of those ideas fully covers the concept of peace as presented in the Bible. In the Bible, peace is not merely the, the absence of conflict. It's primarily about the presence of something. The Hebrew word for peace in the Old Testament is shalom. And it's one of the most theologically significant words in the whole Old Testament. Shalom literally refers to something that's complete, something that's whole. All the necessary parts are present and nothing is missing. That's shalom. And because of this understanding of peace, shalom is often associated in the Old Testament with safety, health, and prosperity. It's not just calmness. It's the presence of life and abundance. It's flourishing. You lack nothing. And humans, in some way, we can create this kind of peace. During the time period of the Old Testament, when two nations committed to no longer be at war against each other, they would enter into what was called a covenant, an everlasting agreement. A covenant, it was more than just a promise or a contract. A covenant was the start of a new relationship, saying that from now on, we're bound together. Let's till this earth, grow gardens, build houses, and be committed to helping each other thrive. They made peace. But there was also an understanding by the biblical authors that while humans can create temporary peace or imperfect peace, truly unshakable shalom can only come from God himself. He is the source of peace because he's the source of life the only being who truly lacks nothing. And even when we pursue peace on earth, we're just reflecting him. Now, before I get going, I want to make a side note. Uh, as I read verses today, I'm going to point out when in the original text, the word shalom shows up. And because the English translations don't always use the word peace, but I find it so illuminating when you can see all the times when shalom is being used. So it's just a side note as we get going into uh, the whole story of the Bible. Our first glimpse of peace in the Bible comes right at the beginning of the story, at creation itself. Out of the chaotic void, God creates the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars. He grows plants. He creates animals. He creates humans. And then in Genesis 2, God plants a garden in the wilderness. 
It's called Eden, which means paradise. And what is a garden, but a place designed to make life grow and thrive. There's an abundance of beauty and food in this garden, plants and trees everywhere. There's precious metals like gold everywhere. And there's a mighty river that flows out of the garden, feeding everything. In addition to abundance, we also see harmony, different things working together, both thriving, both at peace. There's harmony between humans and creation where man is to work the garden, but there's no thorns and thistles. Harmony between humanity and the animals. Adam is able to name each of the animals and there's no fear of being gored or mauled or bitten by them. Harmony between humans themselves, man and wife. And lastly, harmony between humanity and God, where he's actually present with them in the garden. And with that harmony, that means there's no strife, no jealousy, no striving, no anxiety, no shame. Instead, there's community, camaraderie, delight, rest. Lacking nothing in my environment, lacking nothing in my relationships, it's shalom. And all of this is possible because once again, God is the source of peace. He has provided all of it. They didn't earn it. God just freely offered his shalom out of his generous love. And for the rest of the Bible, the offers repeatedly refer back to the imagery of Eden to describe what peace looks like. It's about flourishing. But unfortunately, this shalom doesn't last forever. The humans are deceived by the serpent. He lies, telling Eve that she can be like God if she just takes the forbidden fruit. So Adam and Eve reject God's rule over their life and eat the fruit, believing that they do lack something, believing that they're the ones who can and should bring shalom into their life. Maybe this'll do it. And this is the story we still struggle with today, right? We're told your peace is dependent upon you. Go and find it, create it. You decide what flourishing looks like. Do whatever it takes to achieve it. Optimize your life. Find the right technology, the right technique, the right journal, the right app, the right community, the right job, the right hobby. Then you'll be whole. I feel like it's you know every commercial right now. This is the vision of wholeness for your life. What you're missing, try Coke Zero. It's, they, they, they know what we're longing for though. We think a piece of fruit can give us something that only God can. We're like, as C.S. Lewis says, children just content to make mud pies in a ditch while we're being offered a holiday at the sea. But the joke's on us because we don't actually know what can make us whole. We cannot provide our own peace on our own terms. Sooner or later, it falls apart. And it falls apart for Adam and Eve. God confronts them over their rebellion and distrust. He curses the snake for its deception. He curses the ground. And so the peace between humans and creation damaged. He declares that there will be strife in marriage. So the peace between humans themselves damaged. And then God casts Adam and Eve out of Eden, out of paradise and into the barren wilderness. The peace between God and humanity damaged. 
And we've been trying to get back to Eden ever since, trying to return to a state of shalom where we lack nothing. And much of the rest of the story of the Bible and the story of humanity as a whole is about how we keep trying to manufacture peace on our own and how we keep failing at it. But thankfully, God has a plan to bring back shalom. Many, many years after Adam and Eve, even after Noah and the flood, God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. Covenant, an invitation to a relationship, a gesture of peace. But this isn't like the covenants that humans make that are dependent upon both sides keeping the covenant. This covenant is one-sided, initiated by and dependent upon God and God alone because he is the only provider of peace. And he tells Abraham that from his offspring will come a great nation. Kings will descend from him. And that through his descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Humanity working together, flourishing in abundant blessing at peace with God. Sounds a little like Eden. So God's promise comes true. And the nation does descend from Abraham. But then they're enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. But then God miraculously rescues them. And after they've been rescued, God lays out for this new nation what it will look like to live as God's covenant people. He lays out the law. And one of the most significant areas of the law that teaches us about God's shalom is the sacrificial system. Remember, sin caused a rupture in the relationship between God and man. Humanity was cast out of the garden. So what's the solution? How can humans be at peace with God again? Well, the sin must be dealt with. There must be justice in order to have peace. And we understand this instinctually, right? If someone commits a horrible crime, maybe they were abusive or they defrauded vulnerable people, and then they get off scot-free with no acknowledgement of their crimes, no remorse, no repentance, And then imagine they went to the people they hurt and they said, we're all good, right? Let's let the past be the past. We'd feel a deep unease about that, perhaps even anger. Nothing feels right in that moment. It definitely doesn't feel like shalom. And that's because we know the crime hasn't been dealt with. Justice hasn't been served. Human rebellion must be dealt with. And the Israelites needed to show that they recognized the seriousness of their sin and take the necessary steps to make things right. So God laid out a way for them to do that through the sacrificial system. Hebrews 9:22 says, "Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." It sounds intense, but through the sacrificial system, they were able to treat sin with the seriousness it deserved. Understanding that something is dying in my place because of my actions. And it's not that the blood of sheep actually pays for their sins. Livestock and humans are not one-to-one equivalents. It's about God wanting to set a pattern for the Israelites to teach them something. That sin brings death. And so something must die in your place for you to be forgiven. And you have to trust that God's way of making you whole is the only way. 
it wasn't a permanent solution, but it was the continuation of God's plan to bring back Shalom. But in addition to that, the law taught the Israelites how to pursue justice in their community as well, so they could have peace amongst each other. There must be justice in order to have peace. There were laws about how they were to treat one another, how they were to treat servants, how to treat immigrants, how to treat animals, how to treat the land, and how they should make amends when they've wronged someone, and so much more. These laws were teaching God's people what it looks like to restore and maintain shalom in their community. Isaiah, speaking to a rebellious nation of Israel hundreds of years after Moses, connects the concepts of justice and peace, saying in Isaiah 59, 8, the way of peace, shalom, they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows shalom. For a community to be whole and justice must be corrected, oppressors judged, restitution made. And since these laws were so important, The kings of Israel were tasked with the responsibility of leading the people in God's way of peace. They were to set the example. And when uh, when the kings followed God and pursued peace, so did the people. When the king rebelled, though, often so did the people. But the greatest period of peace and prosperity in Israel's history was under the reign of King Solomon, King David's son. Solomon's name in Hebrew is... Shalomo, sound familiar? It's translated as peaceful. And he was rightly named because there was no war during the entirety of his reign. God gave Solomon wisdom beyond any other man so he could judge the kingdom with justice. And he turned Jerusalem into an Eden-like paradise, planting gardens and forests, shipping in exotic animals from distant lands. And many consider him to have been the richest man in the history of the world, collecting the modern equivalent of an estimated $2.2 trillion. Not bad. And it wasn't just the king, though, who was flourishing. First Kings 4.25, and Judah and Israel lived in safety, shalom, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. The plant imagery should take our minds straight back to the garden again, the whole community working together toward the flourishing of the land and of their neighbor. Everyone has what they need, lacking nothing. Everyone prospered so much at this time that 1 Kings 10 says that silver became as common as stone to them. And then Solomon builds a temple to God so God's presence can be in the midst of his people again. So if you're an Israelite at this time, you're thinking maybe this is the guy to bring back God's shalom to this world. Solomon's doing all these things and it looks like it's pointing to Eden, the peace we've been hoping for. His name's literally peace. But this peace was also not like Eden. The first sign of trouble is that much of his kingdom was built off the backs of slaves. And his prosperity was accumulated and maintained through Solomon's marriages to pagan women from pagan kingdoms to make peace treaties. 
And he soon allows their religious beliefs and values to influence him and introduce idolatrous worship to Israel. So what is Solomon doing here? He's trying to create this prosperity on his own terms, through his own means, instead of trusting God as the true source of peace. And it all falls apart again. After Solomon dies, his son takes over and the country is torn in half through civil war. No longer whole again. And the people will really never be whole again, not in the same way. Solomon's story shows us that even the best of us can't create lasting shalom on our own. Later, after dozens and dozens of kings who mostly did not pursue peace, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, comes and destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple. The people are exiled out of their homes, out of the promised land and into a pagan country. Jeremiah says of this time in chapter eight, verse 13, There are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. It's the opposite of the prosperity that Solomon brought in where everyone else sat under their own vine and own fig tree. Now the garden has died. No abundance, lacking everything. But then to this broken, oppressed people, God gives a glimmer of hope. He says to Israel in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for shalom and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. But how is God going to bring about this new shalom out of a great darkness? Well, the prophets tell the readers there's going to be a new king. A king who, unlike Solomon and the rest, will actually bring about shalom and return them to the life of the garden. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Shalom. And of the increase of his government and of Shalom, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Each of these titles is royal in nature. And that's the focus of this passage. This coming child is going to be king. And his kingdom will be so great that he won't just rule Israel, but the whole world in peace. The pagan empires, like the Babylonians, they ruled the world by might. And they saw peace and prosperity as the fruit of their power. And often we can delude ourselves into thinking the same way, thinking that peace comes from trusting in worldly power, that person, that leader, those laws that we can create Eden by the strength of man, the methods of man. It didn't work for Solomon or countless others since the dawn of mankind, but maybe it'll work for us this time. But God is saying only this special king, this child Messiah sent by God, can do it. He 
is the Prince of Peace, the source of peace itself. Micah chapter four, verse three. He, that's the Messiah King, shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This king is a blessing to the nations, like just like what was promised to Abraham. And he is ending the hostility between men, ending war itself. But remember, the absence of war alone is not shalom. So we look at the very next verse, Micah 4, 4. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. This verse is a clear callback to the time of Solomon, but Micah is saying this time it's for real. Eden has returned. And the image of Shalom, uh, this image of Shalom is so powerful that President George Washington quoted it in his farewell address to the nation. It was made famous by a certain musical that rhymes with Hamilton, but it shows us again that true Shalom includes the flourishing of life. There's no needs for weapon. There's no need for weapons in this kingdom. Let's melt them down and use them to make a garden together. So that's what Israel is anticipating, waiting for. But nothing comes. Slowly, they're able to return to their land, but they're still under foreign rule, still oppressed. No longer the great kingdom they used to be. And they wait in silence for 400 years. Until this one night in Bethlehem, a group of shepherds were watching their sheep and In Luke chapter two, verse nine, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is a royal announcement. The city of David connecting this baby to the kingly line. He's called Christ, which means Messiah, Lord, which means ruler. And what is this child king supposed to usher in? Peace on earth. This is it. He is it, the one we've all been waiting for. In 13 verses earlier in this chapter, a different royal announcement had just been made by the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. He wanted a census to be taken to measure the scope of his power. Rome was ruling the world at the time and Augustus had ushered in a so-called golden age. The Pax Romana, they called it the peace of Rome. People worshiped Caesar Augustus, calling him the son of God. A shrine found in Turkey had this declaration inscribed on it, saying that providence itself had sent the world Augustus, and I quote, as a savior 
both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. The birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. But this Pax Romana was not a true peace. This peace had been won through the sword, first a civil war and then a brutal conquering of other nations. And it was a peace that enslaved one out of every five people in the empire. It was a peace that was enforced through fear, power, and the specter of the most torturous method of execution in human history, crucifixion. Peace on earth through the might of Rome. It was not about restoring things to the way they ought to go. It was about making sure the Romans were great, comfortable, and prosperous at the expense of the nations. So this angel's message to the shepherds is designed as a blatant refutation of Caesar's claims about himself. Here is the true king, the true son of God, the true savior, born not in a palace doted upon by servants and wrapped in fine linen, but placed in a feeding trough in a tiny town in a long forgotten country. And his arrival is true good news for everyone. this child king grew up and showed that he would not just bring peace, but that he is the source of peace himself. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And when we look at the world today, Troubled and fearful are two good words to describe it, right? We're all marked by that in some way. Life is hard. There's so many pressures placed upon us and we're vulnerable. But Jesus is saying that he offers something much better. He gives true shalom, the kind humanity has been longing for ever since we lost it in the garden. He can make us whole. And this peace was won, not through the sword, but through suffering the sword, not through defeating his enemies, but through dying for his enemies. Jesus' sacrificial death on a cross, he takes the symbol of Rome's power and he turns it on its head. On that cross, the sin of the whole world, all our rebellion, all our futile attempts to create peace on our own, all of it gets placed on him. He takes the punishment we deserved. He is the sacrifice that brings justice, the fulfillment of everything the sacrificial system was pointing towards. Isaiah 53, verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom and with his wounds, we are healed. And with that sacrifice, our broken relationship with the father is restored. No longer enemies, but we are instead adopted into God's family. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconcile. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul labels the message of the gospel in Ephesians 6 the gospel of peace, the good news of peace. 
And since we have peace with God, we have been called to be people of peace. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers. We make peace first by pointing people to the one who can reconcile them to God, but also like the ancient Israelites before us by restoring and maintaining shalom in our community. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name, all oppression shall cease. God is the God of shalom. And if we don't pursue peace, we're putting ourselves in conflict to God's very purposes We're called to look around and ask ourselves, how can we help our community flourish like a garden? And we do this not with utopian delusions, thinking that we can bring in perfect shalom on our own, but through Christ's example and power, we can make our community a little bit closer to hope. Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Seeking peace is such an important aspect of the Christian life that peace is listed as one of the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5. There's a little bit of that garden imagery in there, fruit, helping us remember what flourishing truly looks like. So you may be thinking, okay, all this peace talk makes for nice platitudes to stitch on a pillow or something, but look at my life. It doesn't feel very shalom-ish. And then look at our world, it's so broken. And when you read the headlines, it feels like catastrophe is always just around the corner. It's easy, especially for high-strung people like me, to buy into the narratives that totalize disaster. If this person doesn't get elected, we're doomed. If the economy tanks, we're doomed. If Elon saves Twitter, we're doomed. But if we feel our way of peace is threatened. That's when the fear and the trouble that Jesus says the world gives starts to creep in. We may even lash out at those who threaten our peace. But the truth that that Advent proclaims is that we're never truly doomed. Bad things may happen, yes. Pain may happen, yes. But no matter what happens, the Prince of Peace will arrive. And so our doom is never total. Charles Spurgeon said, know Christ and trust him and you need not be afraid. Poverty shall not make you poor. Sickness shall not make you diseased. Death shall not make you die. You shall triumph over all these in your inmost soul and come off more than conqueror through him who hath loved you and is your peace. Death cannot defeat us. To paraphrase J.R.R. Tolkien, everything sad, will be made untrue. The great shadow will depart. Everything wrong will be made right. Everything broken will be made whole. There will be shalom. That is our hope. And the angel declared peace on earth. It's not just this intangible peace that lives in our minds as fuzzy feelings. It's peace on earth. God hasn't abandoned his creation. He desires to bring his shalom to this dirt, to the physical world. That's been his plan all along. That's why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And one day 
He'll bring heaven down to earth. Revelation 21, uh, starting verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is the fulfillment of the story. God's plan from the beginning It will be a return to Eden, but even better. It will be a place where everyone can thrive, be safe, and be whole, all in the presence of our king. It's exactly the kind of world our hearts are longing for. I want to end with some more words from the prophet Micah, connecting this future reality to our child king. Micah 5, starting in verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their shalom. Let's pray.